Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. We are thrilled to be presenting a seven-part series with our fantastic partner, Maze Row Wine Merchant. We are proud to present this series of interviews, diving deep into the heritage and legacy of Maze Row's excellent Italian producers. Tune in every Saturday from March 5th through to April 16th as we take an intimate look at these respected historic producers and their role as part of the Maze Row family of luxury wines. And remember to check out our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for incredible video content featuring a visit to Argiano. Good morning, everyone, uh, or evening, for those of you in Italy. Buonasera, Marilisa. Buonasera. Well, I'm Sarah Bray. I'm returning this week uh, for this fantastic interview. I'm a wine writer and educator based in the Napa Valley. And today I'll be talking with this incredible woman in wine, Marilisa Allegrini, CEO of her family's company, Allegrini. Uh, we will be talking about the Valpolicella region in the northeastern part of Italy outside of Verona. The wines produced there, such as Amarone, and specifically about her family's contributions to the region's quality renaissance over the last 40 years. So it's going to be very exciting. Then we are going to move into a discussion of Poggio al Tesoro, the family's next project out on the Bulgari coast. And we are going to taste some delicious wines together as we do so. And then finally, today coincides with the launch of Maze Row Wine Merchants in the U.S., previously known as Lux Wines. Allegrini was actually the first winery to join this arm of Gallo, and it's one that celebrates the values of excellence, family, legacy, and sincerity. So it's really apt that we begin this new chapter talking with Marilisa. So with that, benvenuta di nuovo. Thank you very much, Sara. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here with you and to present the Allegrini family history to wine lovers and connoisseurs. Well, you've been doing that for a long time, and we will get into that. But let's begin with a little history. I know your family has been in the Valpolicella region for a long time. So can you give us a little bit of that history? When was it that Allegrini started? How long have you been working in, in wine? So the history of my family in grape growing dates back six generations. And there is an official year of the company foundation, which is 1854. But uh, historical documents witness that uh, grape growing that dates back uh, even earlier than the 15th century. Originally, mine was a typical rural and patriarchal family. But then in the 50s, my father expanded the winery by buying new vineyards and increasing production with an eye to the export market. So is really, it was really a kind of person that understood the importance of innovation and also that it was also important to internationalize the company. And uh, when my father took over, the company was quite small, uh, but the most important imprinting or impetus he gave was uh, his shift toward quality, something that was not taken for granted in those years in Italy. In fact, uh, quantity was more important than quality. We're going to dive into all of the innovations because it really sounds like he was a tremendous man. But before we do that, I do want to talk a little bit about you first. Did you always know that you would be working with your family in wine? 
<laughs> no, no, it was not my first choice as a teenager. But uh, you have to keep in mind the social environment at that time. And also that uh, the agricultural sector was completely dominated by men at that time. And so I wanted to quit, not because I didn't like uh, the family business, but because I wanted to leave the continuation of the company to my brothers uh, as they were already involved in the company. And uh, at the end, uh, the pressure that came from my father, because I worked for five years uh, as a physical therapist in the hospital, but then the pressure that came from him, together with the feeling that uh, my family legacy was something that uh, I too wanted to continue, brought me back uh, into the company. And this happened in 1981. I started in the administration sector and uh, because back then it was less common to travel the world. Plus, uh, when I asked my dad, he always said no. <laughs> and, uh, but also the, to work in the hospital, it was a fantastic experience for me because I think that uh, uh, when, uh, when uh, you learn, uh, when you work with people that suffer, you really have an intimate uh, feeling that uh, also help you in the business. My father, unfortunately, passed away two years uh, later in 1983. So at least I had the opportunity to uh, work with him for two years. Too short a time, I know. Yes, um, definitely, definitely. Well, we'll talk about you and your brothers in that moment a little later on, but let's talk a little bit more about your father because he really did so much to set the stage for everything you've done. And even though he said no, you became a globetrotting CEO anyway. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so can you tell me a bit more about sort of his love of Valpolicella and, and what he brought to viticulture and winemaking in the, in the course of his too short lifetime? So definitely my father was extremely proud to belong to Valpolicella which at that time was not a very highly considered wine producing area in terms of quality. But uh, he wanted to demonstrate the region's uh, true potential and create a reputation for quality. And uh, he was a visionary. He studied deeply the geology and the type of soil and the type of grapes in the area. And he compared this with other great wine regions around the world. He brought back innovations, first in the vineyard, with things like uh, higher density planting and uh, also a different wine training method, like doubled Guyot instead of the traditional pergola. The pergola was uh, heavily planted in Valpolicella, but the pergola facilitated heavy crop. He discovered, for example, that the Guyot training system was very important to control the vigorosity of Corvina and Corvinone, the two most important grape varieties in Valpolicella. And then he studying this uh, grape variety with this uh, very high yield, he understood the concept of yield per vine instead of just yield per hectare. And it was very clear to him that uh, high yield means lower quality. He was very excited to start this uh, new trend in Valpolicella, but uh, he was criticized. Sometimes even by people he respected. 
you could say that uh, he was the sort of person who was prepared to think uh, outside the box, uh, to be experimental, to push boundaries in the search for better quality and innovation. Well, we take so much of what you just described for granted now, but like you said, back in that time, it was a quantity versus quality argument and, you know, the yield having to produce lots of wines. So I can imagine that the criticism came, um, but because they didn't understand what he was trying to achieve. And that has to be stressful because with vineyards, it all takes so long to actually see whether you're right or not. Yes, at least 20 years. And this is the big, big challenge when you deal with new vineyards and when you introduce this kind of innovation. But I think that my feeling is that if you don't have the courage to innovate, it means that uh, things will never change. Well, that's that's a good mentality. It probably has taken you far. But let's let's talk a minute about some of this concept of the vineyards and these experiments. When and where did he actually start with these experiments and the changing of the training system? Are there particular vineyards that you're still working with where you really have seen the fruits of these results over the years? Yeah. Yes, I, I want to make this uh, introduction. Being uh, a winery that had this uh, very long history, uh, Allegrini owns uh, some of the best uh, single vineyards in the Valpolicella Classico area, all located up on the hillside. And uh, in uh, 1979, my father purchased uh, what uh, he called his lifetime dream. With the acquisition of two vineyards, La Grola and La Poia, he started... Uh, its experiment in terms of viticulture. This uh, Lagrola La is a hill and the La Poia is a plateau located in the top of the hill and overlooking Lake Garda toward the west, the mountain to the north and the alluvial plain facing south. So he found, with this focus uh, on quality, he found uh, these uh, two vineyards, uh, the best place uh, to take uh, over the experimental experiments that uh, he was doing with the Corvina and the Corvinone grape. And uh, he gave new impetus to wine growing and uh, made an immense contribution to the rebirth of viticulture and winemaker in Valpolicella. It was probably qualitative revolution, not only for his company, but uh, for the entire Valpolicella. It's pretty tremendous, but it's quite sad that he did not get to see the fruits of all of that labor. Um, he passed away so shortly after 1979. So really, yes, this quality, well, this revolution was carried on by you and your brothers. Can you talk about those early years and the difficulties of that transition? Oh, um, we were young when he passed away. I had just joined the company two years before. And of course, my dad was still in charge of everything. And his knowledge and understanding across uh, all sectors of the company was enormous. So under his control, we looked after separate areas. Walter managing the vineyard, Franco running the winery and winemaking operation. And I took care of the administration. But we were young and it was... Uh, much easier to work under his responsibility. So it was a big challenge for us to demonstrate that we were able to carry on what he did, trying to be as successful as he was. So after he passed away, we had to learn together how to go on. 
And uh, we had to believe in ourselves and accept to learn from our mistakes as we went along. And also to learn about each other, other areas of expertise. And that was especially true for me. And uh, at the beginning, it was uh, a big challenge, as I said, first because we were not used to manage the company. But then we became aware that it was important to have the same mission, even if sometime our vision for the future were different because of our different personalities. I can't imagine. And, uh, <laughs> I love my brother, but I don't know how well we'd work together. So I, I imagine even and, just the interpersonal sibling relationships could be a little challenging too. Yes, you can imagine myself growing up with two strong boys uh, made me aware that I had to find against, against gender prejudice. Uh, it, it was a give and take relationship, but it made me stronger. And I discovered my real passion in the company, which was, uh, I, wa I was so uh, safe uh, when them were, t were taking care of the production that uh, I decided to start uh, traveling the world, uh, becoming the ambassador of the family. And this, I mean, the relationship worked very, very well. Well, and knowing that people you trust and share your, your vision and your mission are taking care of the product at home means you can travel and, and go build the brand and the market like you were saying. So were there yes. areas that you were focused on in those early years? Were you coming a lot to America, for example? Yes, I learned a lot from the United States because I, I learned... Uh... Uh, the first thing was uh, that uh, uh, the wine world was not uh, just Valpolicella or not just Italy, but uh, the entire world could produce uh, great wine. And so I learned uh, to taste different wines from my area. And also I learned how to communicate. Uh, I, learned, uh, I learned many, many things. So I'm really uh, thankful to America and to the American people in the wine industry. Well, and it sounds like those tastings and that exposure really helped you start to think differently about the wine that your region was making and um, allowed you to begin to build differently on your father's legacy. So can you talk me through some of the innovations that Allegrini has made? Specifically, maybe we can begin with Amarroni and the production of, of that famous wine. Yes, uh, I, I explained before the innovation that we introduced in the vineyard management uh, but I think that one of the really big, big innovation happened in the Amarone field. And we have to look at a little bit at the history of Amarone. Amarone in the past used to be a wine quite unknown. A very small group of wine lovers really know Amarone and like really like the wine. And uh, I think that it was because Amarone in the past uh, used to have a different personality from uh, the one that it has now. It was uh, heavy, opulent, uh, sometimes a bit sweet in the aftertaste. But uh, the most important uh, feature was the oxidative, heavy character on the nose and on the palate. This, uh, what I like to call port-like flavor was the most important characteristic of, of Amarone. And of course, this type of wine can be poured at the end of a meal. 
it would be difficult to find a food that could match, could match well with these uh, organoleptic uh, characteristics. My father first understood Amarone could do more, could be better. He planted the seeds of the idea that uh, we could make an Amarone that was uh, more food friendly while at the same time maintaining its personality. And uh, when, when Franco took over uh, the winemaking process, he realized that it was botrytis or noble rot that could occur during the drying process that gave to the wine that touch of oxidation. And so he started experimenting how to prevent it. Before we go into his experiments, let's just pause quickly, because like you said, not everyone knows exactly how Amarone is made. So can you just describe briefly kind of the traditional winemaking process, and then we can go into what the changes are that Franco kind of pioneered? Yes, it's a, a very interesting and unique process and that belonged to Valpolicella for thousands of years, uh, the appassimento or drying process. It was known at the Roman time, but originally it was uh, invented to produce a sweet wine, the Recioto. The Amarone is a very, very recent discovery. It happened only in the 50s. So how can we manage the production of Amarone? In September, when the grapes are uh, ripen, we go in the field, we select uh, the best uh, bunches, and we have to select uh, by law, by the DOC regulation, a maximum of 50% of the grapes in the vineyard. And then we have to take away any single damaged berry, even if it is dry or gray, we have to take away. And then uh, we put the grapes into small boxes and in these boxes we put only one layer of grape and then we put the boxes on pallet and we take the pallet to the drying facility and this is a covered area uh, provided with uh, windows and doors so we can open the windows and doors when outside there is very good ventilation or close when there is humidity outside. And the grapes uh, stayed, uh, in this, stayed in this place for 90, 100, a maximum of 110 days. And uh, during this uh, period, they become like resin. So the water evaporates and uh, at least 40% of the liquid inside the water evaporates. But uh, this is the most evident thing to the, that happened to the berry because what happened is that in say, instead there is an intense metabolic change and this is reflected into the final wine. So the end result is a wine higher in alcohol because of the evaporation of the water inside the berry, but very rich in body, in structure, and also rich in alcohol because uh, the sugar content when we press the grapes uh, for Amarone is quite high. So this is the process. It's unique because from dried grapes, we produce dry wine. No, it, it is quite a unique wine in the world of wine, um, but it does sound like there could have things go wrong if you have fresh fruit drying on a rack for about 90 days. So could we talk a little bit about 
that moment in the winemaking process and how Allegrini has really pushed forward some changes and innovations there. You are perfectly right. There are some events that can happen during the drying stage that in the past, because of this event, undesirable event, we were not able to make Amarone every year. And this is due to the humidity that uh, we can experience in fall or in winter. Remember that we are uh, the 45th parallel in the north part of Italy. So it's an area where the, there is a lot of rain and also because of the proximity to the lake, there is a lot of humidity. So what uh, we uh, understood was that the humidity was the factor that brought the mold or the botrytis to the grapes during the drying stage. And uh, in 1985, after we discovered this, uh, Franco started to experiment how to prevent the botrytis during the drying stage. So few, at the beginning, we experimented in our drying facility. But then in uh, 1998, the, the method developed uh, develop, uh, much in a much better way and uh, we built this facility that is called Terre di Fumane. It is a, a state-of-the-art drying facility where the grapes are carefully monitored and controlled during the four months period of drying and uh, we circulate the air. This is the only technology that uh, uh, we use, believe it or not, but uh, this uh, circulation of air and keeping the right humidity help to keep the grapes healthy. And by doing this, we know that we can arrive at the end of the drying process with perfectly healthy grapes. And by doing so, we prevent the botrytis and the result is what we, we were looking for. So it sounds like for you, the vintage doesn't end when you pick because humidity can change from year to year as well, right? Yes, uh, humidity can change uh, a lot from one uh, vintage to another. Of course, uh, the grape growing period must be great in order to have great grapes. But uh, the final part, so the drying process, uh, is something that uh, we can manage. And uh, we age the wine from 90 to 110 days, depending on the humidity. And just to give you an example, we, if we have uh, 60% humidity outside, we can dry the grapes in uh, a shorter period of time than if it is uh, 70%. And the two last vintages, 2020-20, we press uh, late December and 2021, where the, the fall was a little bit uh, more humid 15 days later. So this variation depends uh, on the vintage. So interesting. Uh, so are you the only ones that are using this Terre di Fumane facility? Uh, no, because uh, when we built the facility, my brother gathered other farmers and producers to share the experience. And because it was his uh, idea, he runs the company as a CEO, but uh, P. Allegrini being the largest uh, shareholder. And all the other participants have shared based on the space they need. 
So we, there are a few other wineries, but there are several uh, grape growers that uh, uh, do not transform the grape into wine, but they sell the, their grapes. That's really incredible, um, not just from a technical perspective, which there was a lot of research that went into building that facility. And I think you have a second one now, right? Uh, that you built yes, later uh, on. The process uh, helped uh, so much uh, for the quality of Amarone that uh, in 2018, uh, there was one uh, dismissed uh, warehouse uh, here in Fumane, in the same village where Allegrini is located. And so we built, uh, we, we purchased uh, this uh, new one and uh, we restored to be a drying facility. And now uh, we have a great potential to control a good amount of grapes because uh, in total we can control the production of 6 million bottles. Of course, not wow. only Allegrini, but uh, with the other produ producer and also is a potential production. So we have the possibility to, to grow. But uh, what I want to focus is the fact that uh, the method, the drying process is still carried out in a very artisanal way. Technology helps, but it doesn't create force uh, and natural condition. So this is uh, our mantra. We always uh, uh, want to have uh, a very crafty craftsmanship way to uh, manage the drying facility. But the impact of that, I mean, 6 million bottles of wine is huge. And, and yes, I understand they're not Allegrini wines, but um, that's an impact on an entire region with that quantity. So it really sounds like you are looking to raise the quality of all the wines coming out of Valpolicella and not just your own. Yes. Yes. I think that uh, there is a quote, rising tides will raise uh, all boats. And this is uh, true also for the Amarone. <laughs> uh, we are very proud to be considered the pioneer in this project. And now many other producers in Valpolicella follow this method. And I think that in general, Amarone has become a different wines from 20 years ago, ago. And in fact, also the worldwide success of Amarone demonstrate this. Amarone no longer show its original oxidized character, but is a wine that is perfect to match with food and to enjoy with a wide, many different dishes. This is probably a good moment for us to taste our first wine together, the 2017 Amarone della Valpolicella Classico. Uh, so I poured my glass about 45 minutes ago and have been just smelling it this entire time that we've been talking and it's been changing so much. But I'd love to hear you talk about this wine a little bit. What, what do you expect on the nose? What does it deliver for you? And this, Sarah, to open the bottle first or to put the wine in the glass is always a big idea because uh, through the tasting and the waiting five minutes, you discover the nuances that comes out from Amarone. So on the nose, you can smell the raisin, of course. You don't uh, sense excess of alcohol because the wine is power, but uh, at the same time, uh, with great, great balance. So this uh, structure that the wine have uh, do not allow the alcohol just to express uh, itself. You can smell menthol, 
plums that come from the raisin grape, and then great aromatic uh, intensity of dark fruit. And uh, on the nose, uh, I'm sure that you don't uh, <laughs> feel this, uh, the oxidation that I was uh, describing. No, not at all. No, no. And then in the mouth, in the mouth of the wine, it has a powerful impact on the palate. And uh, with the mouthfeel gaining finesse and elegance because of the good acidity that the wine have. Remember that another important thing for the balance is the acidity because uh, normally if you overripen the grapes, acidity tend to drop. Right. But uh, when we go through the drying process, uh, all the elements uh, concentrate, including the acidity. So the acidity is what is the give the structure and the longevity of the Amarone. Surprising because, you know, Amarone is a higher alcohol wine. This wine is 16%, but there's a freshness and it finishes so dry and bright. Really quite, I can only imagine what I want to be eating with this wine. <laughs> Another thing that uh, you can feel in the aftertaste uh, is softness uh, without uh, residual sugar. This was another thing of the Amarone of the past, the very high residual sugar. But very high residual sugar show opulence sometimes in a wine that doesn't have the real structure. Here we don't have residual sugar, but uh, we have the structure. And it doesn't feel very heavy. I don't get a lot of oak spice. Can you talk a little bit also about how you finish this wine in the cellar? So uh, in, uh, in January, we press the grapes. The fermentation goes uh, a long time, goes on for a long time, at least 40 days. Then uh, when we reach the, when we finish the first alcoholic fermentation, uh, the wine has achieved 10% alcohol. Is the moment then we separate the wine from the juice from the skin because it's not yet a wine. It has to develop uh, five more degrees alcohol. So at this point, uh, when we separate the juice from the skin, we put uh, immediately the wine into oak. We use uh, 500 liter oak barrels. We choose uh, soft to medium toast barrels uh, as we don't want the wine to taste uh, oak. We want uh, the expression of the, uh, the aromatic expression of the grapes, so the raisin. And we want to have a very, very soft uh, oak uh, touch because then we have to leave the wine in barrel for 18, 20 months. And uh, during this period, all the sugar are transformed into alcohol with uh, this very, very soft process uh, where the wine develop uh, one of the most uh, noble alcohol which is the glycerin. And it is the glycerin that gives this uh, softness the, at the end. 18-20 months, uh, 500 liter oak barrels, uh, and part of the fermentation takes place in the barrel. Well, it's, you know, I think a lot of people think Amarone, a big wine, quite heavy, but the freshness against all of that, that body is really quite remarkable. 
And I know that making wines that are food friendly is really quite important to your family. We talked about moving the Amarone from the end of the meal to during it. So I would love to know what some of your favorite dishes are to drink with this wine, whether from Valpolicella or things you've had around the world. Okay, so my I love to cook. And uh, sometime during the year, I cook what is my signature dish, duck all'orange. And I think that this is the perfect combination for Amarone. But it's uh, long. You have to uh, spend one day in the kitchen if you want to make a duck, duck all'orange. <laughs> so if you are really, <laughs> if you want to trust this dish, I suggest. But otherwise, you can enjoy Amarone with any kind of duck or poultry or any kind of red, red meat, either roasted slowly in the oven or grilled. And uh, because uh, the pairing with food is very versatile for Amarone, even with this uh, very important wine, I discovered that it goes very well uh, with some ethnic cuisine because of its uh, aroma of raisin grape. And uh, I'm referring especially to spicy or sweet and sour flavors. So Japanese teppanyaki, Chinese duck, Indian and Thai food, as well as some savory or spicy Middle Eastern dish. And if you don't want to cook at all, Amarone is very good with the dry aged cheese, especially Parmigiano. Well, I'm coming to your house for Daca l'Orange next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Some of those other really exciting pairing ideas. I can really imagine that sweet and sour flavor profile going well with this wine. So thank you for those. <laughs> I'd love to kind of move away from Valpolicella in a moment and talk about your other projects. But before we do, I want to return to just one other really important contribution that we touched on before, which is the idea of the single vineyard. Um, we just tasted a traditional Amarone DOCG. It's blended from multiple sites but you actually produce several wines from unique sites. We talked about La Grola, La Polla earlier. So can you tell us about the wines that you're making from single vineyards and why they're important to Allegrini? Yes, uh, thanks to the beautiful vineyard that we own in Valpolicella and uh, some are very historical one. We started producing Palazzo della Torre, for example, in 1960s as a at the beginning as a single vineyard Valpolicella. And then in late uh, 70, it took only the name of the vineyard. So now we have the wine Palazzo della Torre, which is one of our uh, single vineyard. Then the same era, we bottled the single vineyard Fieramonte. And uh, now Amarone Fieramonte is our uh, Reserva single vineyard. And then in 1979, my father planted both La Poia and La Grola. And these were the first single vineyard in Valpolicella that were Guyot trained with a focus on varietal expression rather than on the appassimento technique. So we have now these uh, four single vineyards with the different uh, personality that uh, represent the the quality of the grapes uh, that we can cultivate and ripen in different in these uh, different properties, where the exposure, the soil, the everything differs. So we can have soil that is uh, 
clay or a mix of clay and uh, chalk or just chalk. And so we want to enhance the characteristic of the different microclimate. Very interesting. And are all of these planted to the native grapes from your region? Yes. Uh, we don't have anything else than Corvina, Corvinone, which are the two major grape varieties that account for almost uh, now 90% according to the recent change of the DOC rules. And then uh, there is one mandatory grape that is uh, Rondinella, and then we have another grape that is Oseleta, and then we have but a very small percentage of uh, Sangiovese, which in small percentage has always been planted in Valpolicella. So we are really focused on the native, in, in native grape variety. Because uh, we think that uh, if you have great grape variety, why sourcing somewhere else? Uh, when the grapes variety are suitable for this area, for thousands of years, it means that they found the perfect uh, terroir. And uh, we manage now 220 hectares, and, uh, which is uh, 550 hectares hectare, almost. And uh, only small part is still under pergola, but uh, almost the entire state uh, is planted with the Guyo training system. And then we recently developed an important project in Lugana, the wine producing area situated on the uh, southern shore of Lake Garda with uh, 50 hectares uh, vineyard, 120 acres planted with Turbiana another native grape variety from uh, this part of the world and small selection of uh, Cortese. Very fun for you to expand in your region. Well, it sounds like you've come back to your, your father's first innovation, which is making your grapes shine in the vineyard with, with good vineyard management and focusing on what makes Falpolicella so unique and great. You know, when you have a when you had a great mentor, you always follow what you learn from him. I, I'm sure you take those lessons with you, especially as you've expanded to new projects. So I know you're not just working in Valpolicella. So can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to expand to Bulgari, where you have Pojal Tesoro, uh, and where you do work with some international varieties? Well, when you go to Bulgari, you understand why I... The first time I went there, I fell in love uh, with the area. It's very beautiful. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> because it's beautiful, because uh, the landscape is really amazing, because uh, even if you are close to the sea, it's not uh, very well, uh, very much built. So along the coast, there are some hotels and resorts, of course, but in the countryside, is, uh, the landscape is really amazing. And in addition to this... Uh, we knew that the Bulgari was suitable for the production of excellent wine. It was the area where the Super Tuscan started, and uh, together with my brother, Walter, it was uh, really love at first sight. So we decided to start uh, and, uh, in 2002. And by the way, we are celebrating this year the 20 years anniversary of Poggio al Tesoro. Very exciting. Uh, yeah, it's very, very exciting. It, 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 it seems for me yesterday, but uh, when I look uh, around, when I look uh, behind with uh, all the 
work that have been done, I feel uh, very honored that I was the possibility, that I had the possibility to invest uh, in this uh, beautiful wine producing region, but also very proud of myself. Because unfortunately, Walter, two years later, passed away in 2003. So from 2003, from our first trip to Bulgaria, which was in Mm -hmm. 2001, the foundation of the company was in 2002. And uh, I had uh, to carry on also his uh, legacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided to go on without uh, Pierre because the... Also there, we had beautiful vineyard, very well positioned, some along the fabled Via Bolgherese. Well, that's an incredible story of, of strength and resilience for a second time in your life. Yes. Um, do you have other members of your family involved there now? Oh, I'm very happy because uh, my two daughters, Carlotta and Caterina, Caterina is finishing her studies, but sooner or later, they will both be part of the company. They are very excited and very dedicated to the uh, to Poggio al Tesoro. Now, part of their time, but uh, in the future, for 100% of their time. So I'm looking forward. And uh, this is uh, the same uh, thing that I received from my father, something that was uh, important, but still at the beginning, so they will have the opportunity to develop uh, with their attitude, with their personality, Poggio al Tesoro, as they want. Well, you set quite the example as a strong woman at the head of your family's company, and I'm sure they admire you greatly. I don't know, have you ever had any great adversity as, as a woman? Or, I mean, we think all the time, oh, well, Italy is, is such a, a male-dominant country, but you've you've superseded so many challenges in your life. Yeah. As I said earlier, I grew up uh, fighting with, uh, for myself being in the middle of two strong brothers. and uh, But my father ne- never discriminated. So I think that uh, I, I had self-confidence even when uh, I was uh, totally unaware of the difficulty of the business part of the of the, the my my duty and uh, i think that is something that you have to feel inside and you have to feel to be more self confidence women have a lot of power a lot of strength and a lot of capacity and also can dedicate uh, a big part of our life uh, to work because we really when we have uh, a vision we we follow all the difficulties uh, without uh, fear to arrive at uh, the end of what we want. I I agree with you, and I'm sure your daughters do too. With with you teaching them um, in all of the ways that you lead by example, I'd love to finish with the 2017 Sundraya that we both have before we open it up for any questions. Since this is your project, your wine, uh, it's appropriate for you to kind of tell us the story of the project um, through the lens of, of this premium, lovely glass of wine we have in front of us. So what is in it? So, so what uh, you said before that uh, Bulgari is famous for international grape variety that uh, have adapted very well to the Bulgari 
terroir. So I like to talk about the Bulgari expression of the international grape variety. And uh, in Sondraia, we have uh, the three grape variety, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot and Cabernet Franc. 65% Cabernet Sauvignon, 25% Merlot and 10% Cabernet Franc, vinified separately and then blend and put into barriques where they age for 22 months in 70% new and 30% second year barriques. And Cabernet gives power to the wine, Merlot softness and Cabernet Franc the spiciness. So we have the usual deep, uh, deep uh, ruby color of Sondraia, an intense uh, aromatic expression of red fruit, citrus note, hint of licorice, and uh, what I like the most and uh, come from the area where the vineyards are planted and is the personality of this wine, is uh, the beautiful smell of Mediterranean scrub. When mm-hmm. you go to, close to the sea and there is uh, uh, some bushes between the road and the sea, and there are in these uh, bushes, you can smell exactly what you smell now in uh, uh, Sondraia. And no, then it's when, very apparent, those dried herbs, and it just smells like Tuscan sunshine. <laughs> sage, rosemary, this is the, what I feel in yeah. uh, Sondraia. Well, and in the mouth, uh, with the first taste, uh, all the components are very well balanced. The tannins are dense, uh, but also silky, and the palate is elegant and precise. And uh, one thing that I like in Sondraia is the freshness because you know uh, being close to the sea is very easy to reach the uh, sugar content and so sometimes this uh, with this uh, you can lose uh, the freshness but if you um, harvest at the right time and with the right climatic condition you can keep this freshness and we mostly uh, harvest very early in the morning sometime even at uh, night time because we want to bring uh, the grapes uh, to the winery for fermentation, for distemming when they are still very fresh and they didn't uh, reach the temperature that uh, you can experience uh, at noon. Well, that balance of both kind of richness and weight, but also freshness, I think is a DNA that it shares with your amarone, so must be a, a family trait for your wine. Yes, uh, is a family <laughs> signature. Well, with that, I'd love to ask anyone listening to hop in the room for any questions. Fabrizio, please. Good afternoon or good evening. Uh, first of all, I didn't want to ha- have the room sort of come to an end without thanking Marilisa for teaching me again about Amarone and the, its evolution. Uh, I speak as an experience of a, a person that learned about wines actually after moving to America from Italy and uh, being exposed as a salesperson in a restaurant for it to all the wonders of the Italian <clears throat> wine making. And uh, uh, Amarone has always been one of my favorite, and I always search sort of those. Uh, tones in any other wines that I tried to experience. And it's good to know that it's got an update and it's getting, you know, a little bit more popular. And uh, um, so I want to thank you. Now, uh, it's going to be easier for me to sell it just to my friends. I don't work in wine anymore. So 
unfortunately, but uh, it's going to be great to serve it again with all those recommendations. And I look forward to trying it. So it was just a thank you. Thank you very much for your words, uh, Fabrizio. Thank you. Am I happy that uh, you appreciate uh, Amarone? I think the most important thing is just making sure that you share wines you love with people that you love. And so I think with that, that's maybe all the time we have. Um, Marilisa, for me, this has been such a tremendous honor to get to talk to you um, today. And as we kind of prepared for today, it's it's been so great to get to know your story and just your wines in such a more intimate way. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, let me thank uh, all the participants to this uh, occasion. And also, I would like to thank very much Maze Rowe, wine merchant, which is uh, our importer in the United States. And uh, it uh, belongs to the Gallo family. And uh, in the wine business, family is uh, a very important issue, not only in uh, in Italy, but all over the world. And I must say that I love to work with them because even if we are a small company and they are a large company, we share the same philosophy to be linked to our consumer, to our consumer and try to make uh, every year the best uh, possible wine. They're good ambassadors for you, I think. Um, Well, thank you all. We will be continuing this series next week with Barbara Widmer of Brancaya, another world-class producer uh, with an uncompromising devotion to her craft. So with that, I say thank you all. Grazie e a dopo. Ciao. Grazie. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our new Maze Row Wine Merchant series. The focus is on excellence, family, legacy, sincerity, and innovation. Tune in next Saturday for the next installment featuring another in-depth and intimate conversation with the heritage Italian wine producers that form the core of the Maze Row Italian wine family. To learn more about Maze Row Wine Merchant and today's featured producer, see our show notes and visit their websites. Don't forget to subscribe and like our show and tune in to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your pods.